You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Rico. The Mets lose two out of three to the Los Angeles Dodgers. I want to make something very, very clear. I have a regret that I want to get at right at the top. I regret that after the Mets lost Saturday night to the Dodgers in what was easily not their worst loss of the year, but their most pathetic loss of the year. I regret that we didn't do a podcast right then and there. Because I don't want this edition of the Rico to be a, hey, they won a game on a Sunday night. Hey, uh, you know, they won a game. Okay, go beat the White Sox. Here we go. Like the anger that we all had from Saturday and from Friday should still exist in this podcast. And I'm going to do my best to rekindle all the disgust I had from Friday and Saturday. But I think part of the problem when you do a pod after a series is over, the thing that's freshest in your mind is what happened in game three. And in the case of the Mets, it was a win. Now, it wasn't the most impressive win in the world, but it was a win. And there's something that tastes great about a victory. So we'll spend some time on the win, but we need to rekindle the anger and the passion that we had from Friday and Saturday. So I want to apologize to Pete Hoffman. I want to apologize to those that send angry emails saying, where was your instant reaction from Saturday? You're right. And I don't even have a good excuse. My whole family was sleeping. I watched the game live. I wasn't at the game Saturday. I went Friday and I went Sunday. So I I missed the most pathetic game live. I really had no excuse not to give you an instant reaction, Rico. Hoff was doing the overnight, so he was up raring to go. So my apologies. In fact, as my way of giving back, let's start with Saturday. Now, usually we start sometimes with the finale of a series. Sometimes we go in chronological order and start from the beginning of a series. I actually want to go to the middle game of this series because here we are off a three-game losing streak now, the final two games before the break, and then the limp effort they gave on Friday night where Brandon Nimmo just misses a home run, ends up with a double, and then the Met offense goes on vacation. We go into Saturday with Kodai Senga against Tony Gonsolin. And we go into Saturday with Kodai Senga throwing another just brilliant game. Wasn't his most brilliant game, but it's certainly up there. He makes the one mistake to Mookie Betts on a ball that I still can't believe got out. He swatted one of right field and somehow it went out in what I like to call the Chase Utley corner because Chase Utley hit so many freaking home runs in that right field corner at City Field, I think more than anybody, that I basically named it after him. So Mookie hits that home run. Kodai's striking the world out. He gets out of trouble in the sixth inning, pitches a hell of a game, and other than the Brandon Nimmo home run that tied the game up at one in the fourth inning, the Met offense continued what it had from Friday, which was being absolutely pathetic. And I earned that. 
And we'll get to this later. A lot of the reaction in our Rico Bronia email were people mad at me. I had a lot of Met fans pissed at me saying, I listened to the midseason recap you did with Pete. And Evan, you were too soft on the offense. You were too soft on the offense. Yes, the pitching sucks. Yes, the pitching's been a big part of their failures, but too soft on the offense. And what does the Met offense do to come out in the second half? Make me look like a freaking clown. That's what they do. They get one goddamn hit on Friday. They do nothing on Saturday against Tony Gonsolin. They're even given a gift from my cousin, Dave Roberts, who for some reason takes Tony Gonsolin out after five innings. Can you imagine... I know we have some crossovers. We have some Yankee fans that like to be voyeuristic. Can you imagine Aaron Boone taking a guy out after five brilliant innings and 54 pitches and essentially saying, I just wanted him to leave with confidence, which I think is what he said about Domingo Herman last week, but it wasn't to the extreme. 54 pitches in five innings. And certainly the Mets had some good at-bats against him in the fifth inning. Hit a couple of balls hard. Even Daniel Vogelback at one of the warning track. Francisco Alvarez hit a ball hard. DJ Stewart almost hit a home run. I get all that. But Dave Roberts pulls him after five innings. And Met fans, trust me when I say this. I know you're not going to believe me if you only watch the Mets' performance against the Dodgers. The Dodger bullpen has sucked all year. Not this weekend. No, no. Not this freaking weekend. Alex Vesia is, you know... Randy Johnson out of the bullpen in his prime. I'm sorry. I should have come up with like Billy Wagner in his prime. I don't know I'm going to Randy Johnson. Came out of the bullpen in a playoff game a couple of times. What are we talking about? But that's what they made Alex Vesey look like. He barely broke a sweat getting all his freaking outs. Brewster Gratterall. I shouldn't use him as an example. He's had a good year. Caleb Ferguson is ridiculous. And they're mowing the Mets down. So on Saturday, game two of this series, three-game losing streak. Dave Roberts gives the gift from the gods of going to the Dodger bullpen. Alex Vesia, one, two, three. Brewster Gratterall can't throw a strike in the seventh inning, walks the leadoff man. What happens? Boom, boom. Jeff McNeil pops up. Pete Alonso grounds into the easiest double play in the world. And then we get to the eighth inning. The eighth and ninth inning of this baseball game was really the epitome of this season. And I thought that Joe Davis, who called the game on Fox, nailed it. Now, he also made one big mistake, which I'm going to get to in a second. But Joe Davis, after the Brett Beatty drop in the ninth inning, I think essentially said, this is the Mets season. And he's right. But let's go deeper than that, Joe Davis, because you don't watch every Met game. What really was the Mets season was what happened with Pete Alonso in the eighth inning of this game. Pete has been dreadful offensively. We'll spend some more time on that later. But he has been great defensively. He even began the eighth inning by robbing Will Smith of a base hit. And we've said it on this pod. Pete's been great. Pete's been great. Pete's been great. You've got first and third, one out, eighth inning. And David Peralta hits a ground ball, double play ball. And Pete Alonzo makes just a slightly, slightly bad throw. Not the worst throw in the world. Didn't throw it in the left field, but he throws it high enough for Lindor to have to come up off the bag, come back down, eventually tag second base, and David Peralta beats it. And what happens? The Dodgers take the lead. And what do we all know in that moment? The Mets ain't scoring a goddamn run. We all know in that moment, oh, crap, this game is over. 
And look, I put a lot of this on Adam Adovino because Adam Adovino comes in and he gives up a base hit to Max Muncy, who's hitting 195. He gives up a base hit to J.D. Martinez. And while he got the ground ball double play on David Peralta, he put himself in the spot where one tiny little miscue can cost you. And more so than the Beatty drop, that play, and I'm not meaning to kill Alonzo defensively because, again, he's been great defensively. He's been terrible offensively, which, again, we'll get to. But that slightly high throw felt like the baseball game to all of us, and it essentially it was. And so even though Adovino worked his way through the inning, and that was the only run he gave up, it's a two-to-one baseball game on not an error by Pete Alonzo, but a miscue. So that's part number one that epitomizes this Mets season. But what really may take the cake is the bottom of the eighth inning. Because in the bottom of the eighth inning, Tommy Pham works his Pham magic, 10-pitch at-bat, draws a walk, pinch hitting for Daniel Vogelback. They get a base hit from Francisco Alvarez, which is great to see because he's been cooled off recently. They have first and third and nobody out down a run. And we are all thinking the same thing. How are they going to find a way to not score this run? How would, granted, it's the bottom of the order, but you're facing Caleb Ferguson. Can they find a way, not even to take the lead? As much as I want them to score two runs and take the lead, just tie the effing game. Just tie the game. At, at minimum, with first and third, nobody out, tie the game. And here's where Joe Davis completely screwed up, and I will not forgive him. And this is why I should go to games. Because when I stay home and I hear these broadcasters, they say things that piss me off. So first and third, nobody out. Here comes Mark Canada, pinch hit for DJ Stewart. By the way, no issue with this. All right, I'm with Buck on the managing so far. He goes to fam for Vogelback. Great. Now he's going to Canada for DJ Stewart. No brainer. Your other option is Starling Marte. But we later found out Starling Marte was barfing. So he was not feeling well. Little did we know we would all begin barfing right after this inning was over. So Mark Hanna comes up, and Joe Davis says, son of a bitch. Joe Davis says, you know, Mark Hanna is very quietly having a good year. Is he, Joe? Is he? He's lost his everyday left field job. He's not an everyday player anymore. He's a 240 hitter with a seven-something OPS who's averaged defensively in left field, who has not nearly had the clutch here he had a year ago. And you're trying to tell us, us schmucks, who are spending a Saturday night watching Mets-Dodgers, you're going to try to tell us that Mark Hanna is secretly like it's like it's quiet. <sighs> don't make a noise. Don't make a peep. You don't want to wake Timmy. Mark Hanna's having a good year. Up your ass, man. First pitch, what does Mark Hanna do? He pops up. <laughs> pops up. Dude, I would have taken a 6-4-3 double play because at least it ties the game. And he pops up in foul territory to Freddie Freeman. Milliseconds after Joe Davis tells us, yay, Mark Hanna quietly having a good year. We were dead from that moment. D-E-D, dead. Brett Beatty put together the limpest, most pathetic at-bat soon after. I mean, capping off maybe one of the most pathetic all-around performances one can have. Brett Beatty was 0 for 3. Hear me out on this. 
I would put up Brett Beatty Saturday night with any dog shit performance I've ever seen. He was 0 for 3 with three strikeouts. There was one pitch out of the strike zone that he didn't swing at. So I think he saw 10 pitches, nine strikes. 0 for 3. The only reason he didn't have a golden sobrero is because the Met offense wasn't able to give him a fourth at bat. And then you combine it with the drop pop up in the ninth inning. <laughs> Holy crap. I mean, Brett Beatty, and I'm not DFAing him. I'm not sending him back to AAA. I'm not packaging him for a middle reliever. I'm not giving up on Brett Beatty, but I'm calling out that his performance on Saturday was as putrid as you'll ever see. And he strikes out meekly on three pitches. And then poor Luis Guillorme. That guy never had a shot. And if Marte is that sick, then obviously he was because that's a no-brain pinch hit spot. No-brainer. Lefty-lefty, Luis Guillorme. I mean, it's what are we talking about? So obviously Marte was very, very, very sick because it left us sick watching Guillorme strike out on three pitches. The one saving grace was, and this is not a saving grace, but the one minor saving grace is, all right, they'll have the top of the order up in the ninth inning. And so while they probably won't score a run against Devin Phillips, at least they've got guys with a half a shot coming up in the ninth inning. And then we're put out of our misery. We're put out of our misery because Buck Showalter in a one-run game decided that Grant Hartwig, as well as he's pitching, is being called up gives the Mets the best opportunity to keep it a one-run game against the top of the Dodger batting order that includes Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, and Will Smith. So my first guess from Saturday was, how is David Robertson not in this game? I think that's an obvious one. He had not pitched the night before. We are just coming off the All-Star break, and the Mets have an off day on Monday. So you can't even look at, well, I can't pitch him Saturday and Sunday. This is why we should have done an instant reaction, because I would have screamed about this for five minutes. The reason I can't is because Buck Showalter did reveal on Sunday night after the Mets win that David Robertson was sick on Saturday. And as much as Pete rolled his eyes right now, and I want to roll my eyes, what are we going to do here? If the guy's sick and he's throwing up like Starling Marte, do we really want him pitching the ninth inning against the top of the order? And yeah, you could argue that's still better than Grant Hartwig. If the guy can't play, the guy can't play. So Saturday night, did I feel that way? No, because we didn't know. How the hell did we know? We wouldn't know. Unless we're in the toilet with David Robertson, how do we know what's going on? What's going in or out? We have no idea. But we did find out Sunday night he was sick. Knowing that, are there better options than Grant Hartwig? I hate to say this, not really. <laughs> because Grant Hartwig had pitched well. And you want to go to Drew Smith? How did Drew Smith do the night before? Exactly. You want to go to Trevor Gott? Until Sunday, we had no idea how bad Trevor Gott was. Trevor Gott was fine, but I guess you could have gone to him. Want to go to David Peterson on a back-to-back? Not really. So I guess knowing that Robertson was sick, it, it puts you in a spot of, well, who the hell are you going to go to? And the truth is, as bad as Grant Hartwig was, he was halfway out of this jam when he got Max Muncy to pop up to third base and Brett Beatty lost it in what, the moon? I don't know what he lost it in, but he couldn't catch an easy pop-up, which allowed Mookie Betts to score. And then, yeah, the Dodgers tacked on J.D. Martinez, RBI single, David Peralta, RBI single. And by that point, 
Cats out of the bag. Mets are down five to one. This game is over. They are not rallying in the ninth inning down two to one, but at least you wanted to see them have that shot. And it was eliminated because this team found a new way, a unique way to stick it up our ass. A defensive miscue by Pete Alonzo, a failed first and third, nobody out rallying in the eighth. And then with David Robertson under the weather, weather, Grant Hartwig couldn't overcome a monumental miscue by Brett Beatty dropping a pop-up, which off the bat, you could see he was in trouble. As soon as he turned sideways, you could see he was in trouble. And I hate to agree with A.J. Przinsky because he's an ass, but Francisco Lindor, when you see Beatty's in trouble, and you should have seen it immediately, do you go over and try to call him off and make the play? Lindor's kind of watching and then eventually runs over and covers third base. But I could see it at home that Beatty was in trouble. So if I could see it, you just wonder, can Lindor notice it? Did he notice it? And then can you react by saying, let me bail this kid out. It's a high pop-up. I've got time to get over. And he didn't. Ultimately, it's on Brett Beatty. And ultimately, it's on the Met offense that managed three base hits. Mookie Betts had more base hits on Saturday night than the New York Mets. That is the truth. So we could package this mess into however you want. The offense did nothing. That's clearly culprit number one. The defense found a way to make big miscues. That's clearly issue number two. And uh, we're all there watching it, which is our problem. That's issue number three. Saturday night was not the worst loss of the year, Pete, but it was clearly the most pathetic loss of this season. Yeah, and the, there's a couple things that came out of it, too. You touched on Pete, what we're going to get to. But Brett Beatty, I'm sorry. If if we and you and I don't agree that the Mets are basically done now, this is basically after the series, the way the lifelessness of this team, it's a wrap on the season. I feel like they're completely done. It's it's time to sell. I'm frustrated. You're frustrated. We can't be satisfied with the win on Sunday and be like, all right, let's throw a party. But if this was a team that was winning games and was fighting for a playoff spot, you'd have to send Brett Beatty down. I know that you you don't want to, but he's done nothing offensively. He's hit one home run since May 19th. His defense is continuously shaky. And at this point in time, he is just kind of over his head. Meanwhile, I have other kids I see that are in the minors that, that are ripping the ball and they don't get a shot. I, I don't get it. I understand and respectfully, at this point, it's too late. So play him every day. But if this was a really uh, competitive season, you can't play him anymore. The only reason I... I mean, it's it's moot because I'm not arguing with you that they're dead. They're eight and a half games out of a playoff spot, and they came out of the All-Star break lifeless, and winning a salvage game against the Dodgers doesn't change that. But I want to bring up two names. The local name is obviously Anthony Volpe and how much better he's played with the Yankees sticking with him. But I, I'm going to give you a non-local name. And if you want to look up the stats to know what I'm talking about, Gunnar Henderson got off to just an abysmal start. Gunnar Henderson in the middle of May was hitting, I'm not joking, 170. Like as bad as Volpe was, he was never that bad. And Gunnar Henderson was down to 170. And the Orioles were winning, so it makes things easier. They continued to run him out every single day. They ran him out every single day. If you look at his numbers now, I'll tell you, he's up to 245 with an 800 OPS. And so I think sometimes with young players, 
And in Henderson's case, and in Volpe's case, those are two teams that are in a pennant race, despite the Yankees' recent issues. They're in a race. They're not buried. The Orioles are basically running away with a wild card spot. And yet, those two teams in the middle of a pennant race said, we've got prized prospects that we really believe in, and we're going to run them out every single day. So I don't think the Mets are in a pennant race. But even if they were, I would actually fight back on that with Beatty and say, yes, as bad as Saturday was, as bad as he's played for over a month, you're right. I can't argue with the way he's played, how limp he's looked offensively. I think I'd still run him out there every day. Now, we're in an easy spot because at eight and a half games back of a wild card spot, of course you're going to run him out there every day. So my disgust from Saturday is any fans disgust. He he was awful. Like, I'm calling it like it is. He was 0 for 3 with three strikeouts, and he saw 10 pitches, and he dropped a pop-up that cost him the game. I mean, pound for pound, it does not get much worse than Brett Beatty Saturday night. But when I went to the ballpark on Sunday, did I want to see his name on the lineup card? Of course I did. And guess what Brett Beatty did in his first at-bat in the second inning? Lead-off base hit the right field. Eh, let's, not, let's not have a party. We're not having a parade for this, but it was at least nice to see. And I thought when he came up in the ninth inning on Sunday with a runner on second and two outs right after the immortal DJ Stewart stole second base, I did think for a second, boy, this would be a great capper for Brett Beatty. Wouldn't it? For Brett Beatty the following night to get a game-winning hit, which he didn't do. <laughs> he, grabbed, he grabbed it out to third base. But I did think about it for a second. So I think with young players – we all just have to have patience. Now, that patience will not last forever. There's going to come a point where you say, I've seen enough. He ain't the answer. It is not fair for me to do that in the midst of year one. And I think that those two examples I gave in Anthony Volpe and Gunnar Henderson, more so Gunnar because he's really put it together, more so than Volpe. But those are examples of why you got to be patient. But Saturday sucked, man. It was a dreadful performance all the way around. And I think what makes this difficult is that it's everybody. I mean, when you look at offensively how bad it's been, like Pete Alonso has been in a massive batting slump for what feels like months. And I think it's too easy to just point to the injury and say, well, when he, since he's come back, he's hitting 150. Well, what about the three weeks before that? What about the month before that? Pete Alonso over the first month felt like MVP Pete, as you'd say, MVP. And he's been nothing close to that. And the only reason his numbers still look halfway respectable is because he had so many home runs early that you can look at the 26 home runs and 61 RBIs and, and rationalize it by saying, well, he should still hit 40 and 100. Well, well, yeah, okay. He was also on pace for 60 and 130 not that long ago, and his batting average is sinking like a stone. And I know we live in a world in which, ah, batting average. Look at Max Muncy. It's so overrated. <laughs> It's not underrated. It's not overrated. He hasn't done a damn thing. He's not getting any hits. So Pete's a problem. Francisco Lindor came out of the All-Star break, and he's been a problem offensively. Made a very good defensive play Sunday night. But defensive play, uh, offensively, he did nothing in this series. Jeff McNeil has pretty much picked up where he left off and has done nothing. I mean, it's really everybody in this three-game series outside of Brandon Nimmo. He was the one guy who at least looks like he's sort of out of his slump. He got robbed a couple of times, uh, specifically on Sunday, hit a ball to deep center field, and James Altman made a great catch. He hit the home run in game two of this series. And remember, he's the guy with the ball that looked like a home run in game one, and it bounced off the top of the fence for a double. So offensively, they are a mess all the way around. Let's go to game one. 
of this series. I walked into City Field, Pete, on Friday night, not chipper, wouldn't say that, but a sense of, okay, let's go. Yeah, they lost two games to the Padres. Yeah, it wasn't a great end to the first half of the year, but let's start anew. Got Justin Verlander on the mound. You got a packed house at City Field. It's fireworks night. I'm in the building. I've had a nice vacation. I'm feeling good. It's my first Met game as a 40-year-old. Things are going to turn around. Like, I, I was actually optimistic, maybe too strong, but I felt a sense of, all right, let's see what happens. And I have never seen before a first batter in the bottom of the first inning set a tone that we all could feel coming. Like, Brandon Nimmo hits a ball off the top of the fence. I I clearly know it's not a home run. So even when they're signaling home run, I I went to the game on Friday with a buddy of mine, Dennis. I said, that's not a freaking home run. Like, unless I'm blind, unless I'm confused, I'm out of whack coming out of the all-star break. That that's not a home run that hit the top of the fence. We obviously see the replay. It hits the top of the fence. They stick him on second base. And he said it first in fairness to him, not me. He looks at me and says, they're not going to score him, are they? And I said, no, they're not. And I have this bad feeling that this is going to be our best offensive chance the entire game. And what happens? Tommy Pham strikes out. Francisco Lindor strikes out. Pete Alonso draws a walk, and Starling Marte hits a tiny little fly ball to right field, and it's on like Donkey Kong. Because the Met offense from that moment forward just got mowed down all night long by Julio Urias. It was painful to watch. Painful. And you get teased because, you know, Verlander worked through the first. He got through a walk in the second, picked off James Altman, gets a one, two, three, third, a one, two, three, fourth. And you know what I did in the fourth inning after Verlander settled in? It's my fault. I'm going to raise my hand. I did it. I texted my wonderful wife. And I said, Justin Verlander has not allowed a hit through four innings. What am I doing? Like, have not, have I not learned from past experiences? He had thrown like 90 pitches through four innings. Like, even though he had not allowed a base hit, there, there was no way in the world, even if that continued, he was going more than six innings, which meant Drew Smith and David Peterson and Trevor Gott were going to have to contribute to a no-hitter. And I opened up my big, fat mouth. And what does Justin Verlander do? He walks not just three guys in a row, which is bad enough, still holding on to his no-hitter. He walks the seven, eight, and nine hitters back to back to back before Mookie Betts is coming to the plate. Oh, my God. You know, when Verlander did that in the fifth inning, and had not allowed a hit yet at this point, which I'm not, it was only fitting that for me to open up my mouth and even text my wife about a no hitter that I'd have it shoved back at me by, yeah, he's still not allowing a hit, but he's walking freaking Jason Hayward, who hasn't been good in seven years, job James Outman and Miguel Rojas to get to Mookie Betts, who in a normal year, maybe wins the MVP again. Uh, and then he gets him to hit a line drive to left field, and Mark Hanna can't catch it, which should have been an error, in my opinion. So all bad defense is not measured by error. Sometimes bad defense is measured by, you know, just not making a play you should make. 
And then he gives up the dumper to Freddie Freeman, the down three enough. Then you put the lights out. Now you could basically wrap it up and just get the hell out of town. It was a very mediocre performance by Verlander. He walks six guys in five, six guys in five innings. He doesn't get helped out by the defense. Like I mentioned, Canna's got to make that play. And I know Freddie Freeman's two-run double wasn't exactly smoke, but here's the problem. When you walk as many guys as you do, you put yourself in a spot where weak contact can kick your ass. Throw strikes. And Verlander didn't. And he doesn't give him innings. He gives him five innings coming out of the All-Star break. And even though the Met bullpen is rested, look who they're going to. They're going to David Peterson, who's a reliever again. Hello, David. They're going to Trevor Gott, who actually looked good on Friday. They're going to Dominic Leone. They're going to Drew Smith. And before you know it, a 3 nothing game is a 4 nothing game, and then is a 5 nothing game, and then is a 6 nothing game. And all the while, the Met offense is being absolutely mowed down. Outside of a walk, a hit batsman, and a catcher's interference, the New York Met offense did absolutely Nothing. Can you- 14 in a row retired to end the game. It was like bang, 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 good night. And by the way, the the hit by pitch to Marte and the Canna, not Canna, excuse me, the Brett, Brett Beatty catches interference. I still don't know if it actually hit Marte, and I still don't know if Marte, if uh, Beatty hit the glove of the catcher. That's still debatable. <laughs> I mean, it really is. So... When you think about it, those two base runners, if they don't happen, you're looking at, hold on, let me do the math here. Three, you're looking at, I think it would be 25 in a row would have been retired by Dodger pitching. It was it was non-competitive, and I think what makes it worse, what made it worse for all of us, is that it was coming out of the All-Star break. And it was coming out of, you know, a week off, basically, the two-game losing streak against the Padres, but at least that chance of, okay, let's start over. Let's see what this team could do now. They still had one six in a row. They're back at home. They got one of their co-aces on the mound. You're facing a guy in your eyes who has not had a great year. He also had that injury where he missed a bunch of time, but has not had a great year. And the Mets get mowed down. And I think to a lot of us on Friday night, it was, does this team give a crap? And I know that's just something that looks a certain way when your offense doesn't do anything. When your offense gets mowed down, it's easy to say, ah, they don't care. I'm not saying they don't care, but it looked that way. They played that way. And that was just an awful, awful start to the second half of the year, especially if you're in that building. I'm in that building Friday night and the booze and the anger, and I'm not blaming anybody for this. I'm just observing, was as loud as I've heard it in a long time. Met fans were pissed, and I, and I, I can tell you why. It's a Friday night against the Dodgers. It's like their highest price level for tickets. They have pricing that changes based on the opponent, time of year and whatnot. And outside of opening day in the Yankees, a Friday night against the Dodgers is the most expensive ticket. I think people are there saying, I want to see my team. And you give that kind of effort. You got your starting pitchers making $45 million a year, walking six guys. You have your offense after a leadoff double basically go to sleep. You had a lot of booing on Friday night, and I don't blame anybody. In fact, in wrestling, it's called a pop when uh, the crowd gets excited and they cheer something. The biggest pop of the night, I'm not joking to you, was a pigeon that got loose on the field. And the crowd started rooting the pigeon on, 
to get away from security. That was the biggest pop on Friday night until you got the fireworks, which I was certainly not staying for. That game ended. I wasn't there with my kids on Friday. That game ended. I'm hightailing it out. And I wasn't the only one. There were quite a few Mets fans that said, I ain't staying for fireworks. But a one hit, a one hit, I guess it was one, two, three, four base runners, one hit, four base runners, lifeless, six-nothing loss in which your pitching walked nine guys. Verlander responsible for six of them. Just an absolutely brutal start to the weekend. Now, I have a question for you. Now, listen, I, I've, it wasn't going to make any difference whatsoever, but David Peterson goes to the bullpen, and he went pitched like 17, 18 pitches, pitches one inning, and then is, is done for the game. If you're going to pitch David Peterson, and I understand that you have an off day on Monday so you can get to more bullpen arms and stuff like that. If you're going to pitch David Peterson, isn't he, especially if you're pulling the star, the starting pitcher at five innings, aren't you going to go to him for more than an inning? Aren't you going to try to push him a few innings? Does that make I would sense? have been okay with it if Peterson had pitched well, but he was he was not good. I mean, remember the last out he got was after he gave up a hit to Miguel Rojas and he got thrown out trying to stretch a single into a double. So if you had kept him in the game, he's now facing the top of the order. He's facing Betts, Freeman, and Will Smith, and that just would have gone awful. Uh, David Peterson has not, in his brief opportunities as a reliever, has not been impressive. Remember that game last year against the Yankees where they brought him in in a hold situation or a save situation? I forget exactly if it was the eighth or ninth inning. I think it was the seventh or eighth inning. He has not distinguished himself as a reliever. I yeah, I went back and forth about that decision because you could have stuck with the six-man rotation, though they do have off days coming up. So a six-man rotation would mean that you're getting your starters once a week, which would benefit Kodai Senga, I guess, but I don't know who else. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you're probably right that his job may turn into a long man. Like if you have to go to your bullpen in the third or fourth inning, here's a guy that could come in and eat some innings and maybe be the Trevor Williams role from a year ago. I don't know if that's where they're going, if they want to see if he could be a short reliever, because they can use him. They don't exactly have a lot of guys that you trust late in games. I think David Peterson's in a weird spot right now. Like, what's his future? He had a terrible, terrible season, got recalled and looked a lot better in the rotation. There's no room for him in the rotation, but he's also one of the younger guys. And if we're talking about, hey, this team's dead, they're not going anywhere, wouldn't you want to see more of David Peterson? Which leads me to assume that while it may not be Scherzer and Verlander, they get the most attention, Carlos Carrasco could be on the outs with a final year of his contract. Jose Quintana, I doubt, because he's going to have to pitch a couple of times before he gets dealt. So really, Carrasco is a guy that jumps out at me as someone that they may deal. Now, they'll pick up a lot of his salary, but it's easier to pick up the one year at $13 million left on Carlos Carrasco's deal, or $13 million, whatever it is, $15 million, than the multiple years left at crazy money on Scherzer and Verlander. And if Carrasco gets dealt, Peterson then re-enters the rotation, but he may be one of those guys. You talk about Beatty and Mauricio and seeing the young players. I know we've seen a lot of David Peterson over the last three years, but they do not have a rotation right now that features major leaguers that can be here in three years. Now, they've got some kids in the system who look pretty good. This Tyler Stewart's pitched real well. I've been keeping an eye on him. His numbers have been awesome. And he's like really big, like 6'8", 6'9", big kid. 
but they don't have a lot of guys currently in the rotation that can be here two, three years from now. So I think Peterson ends up back in the rotation, but at least for now, until either a trade or someone gets hurt, it's weird how they're going to use him. Will he be a long man? Will they try to make him a short man again? Evan, the biggest thing that you just said there, the biggest issue is you said they're probably going to get rid of Carlos Carrasco. Who the hell wants him? He sucks too. Like, And I understand you could say that uh, Cohen will eat the rest of his contract and what are you going to give him for? Like, It, it, it is the, the pieces, there's very few pieces that have any value right now on the Mets. Okay, so you're not going to get a lot for Carlos Carrasco. I'm certainly not going to argue that with you because they won't. But I do think that there are teams. I, I, I'll name teams. The Cincinnati Reds couldn't use Carlos Carrasco as a veteran in their rotation as they try to win the NL Central. The Baltimore Orioles, who had interest in him during the offseason, couldn't use Carlos Carrasco. There would certainly be teams that would be interested. Now, are you getting a prize prospect for him? No, I'm not suggesting that. But look around baseball, man. There's not a lot of great starting pitching. And how many teams are out of it? that have starting pitchers that you would want. Like how many guys on the Oakland A's and the Kansas City Royals and the Colorado Rockies feature starting pitchers that the Orioles or Reds would say, sign me up, or the Dodgers would say, sign me up. They could use starting pitching with all the injuries they're going through. So I'm not suggesting you're getting something amazing back. I'm suggesting that there there would be a market for, look, they got something for Eduardo Escobar. What are we talking about here? Listen, as long as we don't get James McCann back in a trade to Baltimore, I'm fine. (laughs) Hey, the Orioles keep winning, even though James McCann's numbers are pretty dreadful. So Friday was bad. Saturday was bad. Let's have some love, have some success, uh, talk about something positive for at least a short period of time. And that was Sunday's game. But I want to walk you through my Sunday. Though I did get one very upset emailer who said that they did not like hearing about my experience watching a Met game on the toilet and that they don't care, and that that's not what they want from the Rico. I should read that email. That made me laugh. Uh, he, was, he was not happy. He's like, listen, Evan, nobody gives a crap, no pun intended, that you're watching a Met game on the toilet. Let me find where that is. Uh... No, that was brilliant. I, I, honestly, <laughs> over the past week, we've gotten some amazing emails, and you're right. They, they're starting to flood in as they, they keep on getting worse and they're blowing games. It's just, it's very impressive. I appreciate the audience so much. Yes. <laughs> no, you guys are great. No, absolutely. With that said, I'm still going to explain to you when I'm on the toilet watching a Met game. The one email <laughs> will not convince me otherwise. But on Sunday, I was not going to the game. I went on Friday. I did not go on Saturday. And I had no plans to go on Sunday. 140 game. I had other engagements. When the game got moved to 5-10, there was a little reconsideration. And I said to my wife, any thoughts, 5 o'clock game? And she said, I could be interested in like a date night. You know, not take our kids, but maybe me and you, we go to a game. I said, okay. I don't have my tickets. I had already sold them a while ago because I was never planning on going to this game. So between the combination of the Mets sucking, the game time being moved, and the weather forecast not being great, you could imagine what happened to prices. They just fell apart. So I go on SeatGeek, and my wife loved. We went a couple of years ago for my birthday. We sat first row behind home plate. She had surprised me. She bought those tickets, and it was my birthday in 2015. And on that day, we sat first row behind the plate on TV the entire game. I'll never forget the Mets played the Diamondbacks that day. 
Matt Harvey pitched, pitched very well, and hit a home run. And it was great. Just a fantastic day. And so she always said, boy, those are seats are amazing, plus all the food's included. Can we sit there? I said, honey, I mean, I know I'm an afternoon drive, but do I get paid that much? So I go on SeatGeek, Pete, and the prices sank to the point where those tickets were, while expensive, much more affordable than they ever were. Like those tickets usually on SeatGeek are a grand a ticket. And I could never rationalize spending $1,000 to go to a regular season med game. So it dropped to like 200 bucks a ticket, which is not crazy. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. I don't want to act like $200 a ticket is nothing. It's yes, Pete. No. Yeah. But when you think about all the food and everything else, oh. unless it's parking, whatever, but you talk about everything that you're going to consume 200 a ticket with everything comped. It's pretty beautiful. It's not a bad deal. So I say it to my wife and she's like, I'm in. I love it. So I, I bought these tickets front row behind the plate. Now, we were not on TV the entire game. I already did my research to make sure. Uh, my dad was able to catch her like a couple of quick pictures, but it was like a little bit to the left, a little bit to, or to the right. I, I have no idea. And so we go and I get my first Steve Cohen surprise. If you've never sat in this clover box, I think it's called the clover section. I know the food's included, like Pete just said. Yeah, hot dogs, hamburgers. They were serving eggs and bacon because it was supposed to be an early afternoon game. I got my first surprise I had never known, and they just changed this. The alcohol was included. How about that? Open freaking bar. Let's go. What? Let's happening? go. That is... Uncle Stevie, let's, you are the man. <laughs> Dude, I had no idea. Like, I, again, I had sat in this clover section, I think twice in my life. Not all, maybe a few more times because Francesa used to have tickets down there. And I remember he gave me a couple of tickets once. So I had sat down there a few times, but not a lot. And certainly not recently. So I'm, ex- someone tells me the, uh, the security guy explains to me, all right, so here's how this works. You get the food delivered to you. I'm like, delivered. That's what we're talking about. I ain't getting up there in the game. And all the booze is included. So I get my wife a drink. I get a drink. I'm even joking. We're going to have to drink a lot to get through this game. This is perfect. So I am bouging it up Sunday at City Field. I mean, just bouging it up. Got there early. Oh, it was fantastic. It was great. Then I find out the game's delayed by a half hour. We don't even give a crap. We're like, fine. More time to drink, more time to eat. And and this delivery of food thing is unbelievable. Because one thing I've noticed in my time on this earth is even when the food's all included, I want to watch the game. So once I sit down, I don't get up enough. And here, they would deliver it. So I get on my phone and I order, I, I didn't even know this existed, a peanut butter and jelly cookie. And I'm like, holler, let's get that bad boy coming. And within 45 seconds of me ordering this on my phone, here comes some guy with a peanut butter and jelly cookie. I'm like, this is amazing. God, I should get season tickets down here. Then I realized how expensive it would be, and I changed my mind. And I said, nope, I'm sitting in the 300s. I'm good. Now, I want to make one observation. My wife did not like this observation. I love the seats. It was a lot of fun, I think, to watch a game, balls and strikes. You're basically right behind the umpire. It's great. Every ball that's hit, though, I'd rather sit in my section. I'm not even kidding you. I'd rather have the height. 
I think you get better judgments on fly balls and ground balls when you have a little bit of height than when you're that flat. Again, not saying the seat sucks by any stretch. The seat was amazing. I think it's a great experience. The food, the drinks, the balls and strikes, the players at two feet in front of you. It's great. But on fly balls, <laughs> you're better off being elevated a little bit. There's only one person in the history of life that would say that the seats front row are not as good as the seats in the 300 section. And that's Evan Roberts. So that's congratulations. Me. You did it. <laughs> I, I, I pulled it off. So I'm in this section and it's empty. Like no one showed up, which is probably a part of why the, the ticket prices dropped so much, except there was one person sitting about three seats away from us. And that person was, <laughs> that person was Max Scherzer's wife. And I made sure not to call him a piece of crap too loudly because I don't want to piss her off. No, I actually didn't even know it was her until the very end of the game. So if things went badly for Max, they may have gone badly for me because she may not have been happy with some of the things I said. Though my wife did make a comment, which uh, I think was after the first inning when Max threw a one, two, three inning and looked pretty good. Struck out Mookie Betts, struck out Max Muncy. My wife says, so I guess he's not a piece of crap tonight. (laughs) So how did you actually fi- realize that it was her? Like, when did that actually pop up? And you didn't talk to her at all? I didn't. No, I did not. I, I didn't realize it until it was late. I think it was about the fourth or fifth inning. My wife says to me, I think that woman is a player's wife. And I said to her, what would make you think that? And she's like, yeah, women's tuition. I could just tell that that's a player's wife. And so from that moment on, I was like thinking, oh, let me let me see how she reacts to different players. And she would get up when the Mets were up and leave and then come back when Max was pitching. And then when Max was taken out of the game, she left. <laughs> and she was wearing a jersey that said Scherzer, which oh, which well. probably was the topper at the end. And then my <laughs> wife, once I told her, I said, I think this is Max's wife. She Googled her and then said, yep, it is. Because, you know, based on Google and the picture and her. But, uh, yeah. Usually, you could tell by their fingers. Like, if you see a huge rock on their finger, that's usually uh, the wife of a. I went to a. Um, I went to L.A. once, and we went to see a Kings game. My buddy hooked us up with tickets, and we were sitting in the section right behind the wives of all the players. And the reason why I knew that was because they were all hot blondes with these huge rocks on their fingers. So you had to just put two and two together. I'll never forget. I would the first time I ever went to a New Jersey Nets playoff game was actually in Charlotte. I never went to a game in New Jersey at that point. It was when they were playing the Charlotte Hornets in 2002. It was the Hornets last year in that that version of the Hornets. They moved right after the postseason was over. And me and a buddy of mine from D.C., I was living in D.C. at the time, drove down to Charlotte. We're sitting like five rows off the court. It turned out to be the last ever Charlotte Hornets game of that incarnation in Charlotte, the final game at that arena. Nets beat them in game four, and then they won game five, and the whole thing was over. And we were sitting next to a woman who's, you know, she was just, she was scantily clad. I want to clean it up. And I said to my buddy, who that, like, is she married to a player? And she was talking about who she was married to. And I'll never forget it. Lee Nalon. Remember Lee, Lee, Lee Nalon? No. <laughs> Lee Nalon's either wife or girlfriend. Mistress. Or <laughs> mistress or something. <laughs> She she wanted to talk about being with Lee Nalon. Oh yeah, a lot about Lee Nalon that night, Pete. <laughs> a little too much. 
A little too much. It was a great night, though. Nets won, and they advanced. And I got to hang out with Lee Nalon's wife or girlfriend or mistress or whatever. Did she, ask far- if you wanted to, did she ask if you wanted to hang out afterwards? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> uh, so sitting next to Max's wife, we're hanging out at City Field, drinking cocktails, eating hot dogs, eating peanut butter and jelly cookies, and the New York Mets put together really another pathetic offensive performance. I mean, let's not beat around the bush here. You know, Jeff McNeil delivers a two-out double against Bobby Miller. Pete Alonso does nothing. They get a two-out hit from Brett Beatty in the second inning. Mark Canna does nothing. They go one, two, three in the third. They go one, two, three in the fourth. And then in the fifth, they have a rally set up by the bottom of the order. Starling Marte gets a hit behind in the count. Marcana gets hit by a pitch. Omar Narvaez walks. Bases loaded one out, Brandon Nemo. And much like how the Dodgers won on Saturday because of a miscue, the Mets took advantage of a miscue because Brandon Nemo tapped into what should have been a one-two-three double play. And that would have brought, you know, even though Nemo had been hitting at least much better than some of the other guys in this lineup over the course of the last two days, that would have brought the house down in booze. He hits a tapper right back to Bobby Miller, who cannot field it cleanly, goes off of him. And he still gets the out at first base, but it allows the run to score to give the Mets a one nothing lead. And then Bobby Miller came out of the game. I assume he was hurt. I couldn't tell. Maybe they said it on the broadcast. Uh, but he came out right after that, after that comebacker. And the Met offense did not take advantage because Francisco Lindor comes up right after that against Grotterall with second and third, two out, base hit away from making it 3 nothing. And with the way Max was throwing, you actually would have felt halfway decent about it. And Lindor swings at the first pitch and grounds out. And the Met offense could not figure out the Dodger bullpen. And in case you don't believe me that the Dodger bullpen had been mediocre most of the season, I'd like to read some ERAs for you. Ryan Brazier, who pitched a 1-2-3 inning, 5.46 ERA. Phil Bickford, who pitched a clean seventh inning, 5.82 ERA. Alex Vesia, who looks like Billy Wagner in his prime and had one of the easiest 1-2-3 innings in mankind, a four-pitch 1-2-3 inning in the eighth inning against Nimmo, Lindor, and McNeil, came into this game with a 6.45 ERA. That's who the Mets could not hit. And we all knew with Max on the mound, this Met bullpen behind them, and the Dodger offense that scores five and a half runs per game, there's no way they're winning one nothing. Like, no one in their right mind thought that that one run would hold up. Now, to Max Scherzer's credit, and I have to give him credit, because as disappointing as he's been as a New York Met, he delivered on Sunday night. He was great. No issues. No nitpicks. Now, there is one nitpick, but I'm not going to put it on him. <laughs> i get to that in a second. But Max was great. Like, the Mets give him a lead in the fifth inning. What does he do against the top of the order? He actually delivered a shutdown inning. He did not glavin it in the sixth inning. He gets Mookie Betts to fly out, though it was deep. He strikes out Freddie Freeman. He gets Max Muncy to pop up. A shutdown one, two, three inning in the sixth, and then comes out in the seventh with a pitch count at 90 and throws seven pitches for a one, two, three inning against J.D. Martinez, David Peralta, and uh, Jason. Was it Jason Hayward? No, I think he was out of the game already. Jake Marisnik, the former Met. Max was great. I got no negative words for him. Freaking brilliant. 
Gets out of trouble in the fourth when he walked the first two guys, walked Mookie and Freeman. He got Muncie out. He got J.D. out. He got Peralta out. It was really a great performance by Max, one of his better performances of the year. The problem I had, and I'm not going to put it on him, was I would have kept him in. Max Scherzer's pitch count was 97 through 7. He had retired eight in a row. He had not allowed a base hit, really only allowed one hit this entire game. That was that Jason Hayward got hurt on when he put one down the third baseline, tried to stretch it into a double, and Beatty threw him out. He was in complete control and had a reasonable pitch count. Why not? You have an off day on Monday, which means he should have an extra day of rest, depending on how they want to line up this rotation. Why the hell not? You don't have a great bullpen. You got the bottom of the order coming up. I thought it was set up for Max Scherzer to come out and pitch the eighth inning. Buck revealed after the game that someday he'd love to talk about the conversations him and Max have, that sometimes they're very intense. They have a lot of discussions. So was this Max saying I'm done and trying to be honest about it? I guess it's on the table. But I'm just telling you, sitting there Sunday night, I want him to stay in the game. Once Buck decides to take him out of the game, here's the discussion point. He decides to go to Trevor Gott. Trevor Gott had pitched well as a New York man, okay? He had not given us any reason to distrust him, though this is a very different situation. You're bringing him into a one nothing game in the eighth inning. Now, here are your options. Is Adam Adovino available? Probably not. He had pitched the night before. He had thrown a million pitches. He had not pitched the night before that. So, really, it's only one game in the last week, essentially. But he did throw a lot of pitches the night before. Is he available? He should be available. Not that all of us love Adam Adovino anyway. You've got Brooks Raley, and you could go to Brooks Raley to start the eighth inning. Why not? James Outman's leading things off. He'll probably get pinched at four. You've got Miguel Rojas coming up, and then you've got Austin Barnes, who eventually got pinched hit as well. So you've got go to Adovino again. You've got go to Raley, and then you've got my idea. That was None of those things were what I would have done. Besides keeping Max in, which was my first choice, but okay, say so he's taking himself out of the game. You know who I would have gone to, Pete? David Robertson. David Robertson. Because he did not pitch on Saturday. He did not pitch on Friday. The All-Star break was Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, and Monday. So he had not pitched in a very long time. The Mets have an off day on Monday. If there is ever a day for David Robertson to be extended, which, spoiler alert, he was eventually. Why not right here, right now? Why would I mess around with Trevor Gott with a one-run lead? Why? And this isn't one of those situations where I'm asking David to pitch the eighth and I'm going to go to somebody else in the ninth inning. No, 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 Because I got the bottom of the order in the eighth inning. No, I'm thinking, go get me two innings. So instead, Buck goes to Trevor Gott, who does the number one thing he can't do against James Outman? He walks him. He gives up a base hit to Miguel Rojas. They are set up with first and second, nobody out. And here comes Will Smith to pinch it for Austin Barnes, who just misses one to right field, but it's effective because it's a sacrifice fly. Now you got first and third. Now you got Mookie Betts up. At that point, can you get Trevor Gott out of the game? Now, if you want to go to David Robertson then and there, 
I got no issue with it. First and third, one out, the best hitter on the planet or one of the best hitters on the planet coming up. If you want to go to David Robertson right then and there in the eighth inning, yes. Yeah, that's my preferred choice. I would have gone home to start the eighth inning. Instead, he lets got face Mookie Betts. He falls behind Mookie, and he was lucky that all Betts did with that 3-1 pitch was just rip a single to left field. It could have been worse. Then he gets got out of the game and goes to Brooks Raley, which is fine, but why not David Robertson? <laughs> I mean, he's your best reliever. Now, to Raley's credit, he gets Freeman out, he gets Muncie out, and the game is at least tied going into the bottom of the eighth inning. But I wouldn't have done any of that stuff. And in fact, if I'm making the list of best options, option number one, Max Scherzer stays in. Option number two, just go get me David Robertson. Option number three, just go to Brooks Raley, who can get lefties or righties out. Then once you go to Gott, which I disagree with, and two of the three batters he faces get on, and the one guy he got out hit the ball pretty well, I am certainly not having him face Mookie Betts. I thought that was terrible managing by Buck in the eighth inning. And I just went through why. I'm not just saying it was terrible. I just gave you all the different ways you could have gone about this. Then he goes to Robertson in the ninth inning. Fine. Obviously, that's a no-brainer. And what happens? He extends him for the 10th, which, again, I'm with you on this. Like, at that point, of course you go to Robertson in the ninth. Of course you let him pitch the 10th inning with a runner on second. Nobody, of course, like, no one's going to dispute that, but I would have used him earlier. David Robertson does a hell of a job. Gets around a two-out double to Chris Taylor. Gets out of the runner on second. Nobody out. Manfred Rule in the 10th inning. Gets helped out by a tremendous defensive play by Francisco Lindor, robbing Will Smith and keeping the runner at third. And then you got the bottom of the 10th inning. Then what the hell is there to say? Luis Guillerme sent up the bunt. He can't get a bunt down. And on 0 2, he rips one over first base for a game winning hit. I mean, that's just. That's baseball, Susan. Though I do have one question that I need sorted out. Did Luis Guillorme get a game-winning single or a game-winning double? Because on MLB.com, in the box score, he has been awarded a game-winning RBI double. When the video is shown on MLB, it's a game-winning single. I have seen other publications write it as a game-winning double, I've seen some publications write it as a ground a game-winning single. Now, I'm going to give you my interpretation on this. To me, it's a single because the runner is on second base. Like with a game-winning hit, with a walk-off hit, it's usually what would get the run to score. So I'll give you a great example or a better example. If the bases are loaded with nobody out in the bottom of the ninth inning of a tie game and a guy hits a ground rule double, it is not a double, it's a single. If a guy hits one off the top of the fence, it's a single. Robin Ventura, well, that's not a good example because he got tackled. But basically, whatever scores the run is what you get. So you don't get a ground rule double. You don't get a trip. You don't get an extra base hit. You just get a single. What complicates this is that the runner is on second base, not third base. Has there been rare examples of like a double needing the guy to score like he wouldn't have scored on a single. Yeah, there are singles where guys don't score. But in general, on these walk-off hits, they call it a single. So I apologize for wasting your time with this. This is what I find interesting.
What is it a double or is it a single, Pete? Well, where does where does Yahoo get their um, stats from? Is it from MLB or because they have it down as a double too? Yeah. My question, my question to you is this though: Where was he when the run scored? Was he on second base? If he's on second base, it's then it's a double. If he hasn't hit second base yet, it's it doesn't count. There's no way he hit second base. There's no way he hit second base before Beatty scored. There's no way. There, w- there was, you know what? I, I got to look back because I, I, I don't remember who it was and when it was. But I'm pretty sure, pretty sure this year in an extra inning game, there was a walk off triple. Now go figure. How is that even possible? No, no, it's um runner on first. No, in extra innings with a sick guy on second base. I think oh, I was on second that base. Well, no, no. It could happen if the team was down by two runs. Like, you're assuming it was a tie game. If a, if a team's down by two runs or one run, and, well, one run, if, if there's first and second down by a run, <laughs> and the guy hits one up the alley, you're probably going to call it a double. I, I guess it's an official scorer's decision. I've always been under the impression that the way it's determined is, what would have needed for the runner to score? And generally with a runner in scoring position, it's just a single that would allow the run to score. Again, I saw MLB.com's box score call it a double. I saw the video description call it a single. I, I, my scorecard's blank. I tell you that right now. <laughs> like I've got, I've got Owen two on Guillaume. And then I was just excited because I was at the game and the Mets won. And, you know, even though they're 43 and 50 and going nowhere fast, I, I want to see my team win. Period. Stop. Like, that's what I want to see. So I don't know what it is. <laughs> we'll give you an update. Oh, one other thing. And I know this is like a purely selfish thing. Like all of us make decisions based on what's best for our lives. I kind of like the five o'clock Sunday game. I-, I really did. You got the whole afternoon, the whole morning to do whatever the hell you want. And then especially during the, the summer. Now, maybe during the spring, it's a little bit different during the summer. Hot summer day, you go to the pool, you go to the beach, you do all these things. I kind of like the five o'clock game. Am I crazy, Pete? I, I hate the one o'clock start. I hate every one o'clock start. I don't know why, even on the weekends, but I feel like I'm always doing something when they're going on. So if I really want to, if I'm going to watch a game, want to watch a game, yeah, I feel like four o'clock or on is much better. I, again, it, it, it's the, the Sunday night baseball sucks. Seven o'clock is too late. I, I don't want to watch that. So four or five o'clock is a perfect time to start. Time to yeah. start. Now this game started at five 30. It was scheduled to start at five 10 after they delayed it because of the rain, which was smart. They didn't even delay it. They told us well ahead of time. Hey, this game is being pushed back. I think they were offering vouchers to those that couldn't go to the game. So at least you get something not ideal. Cause I'm sure there are people that could not go to this game. Once it was moved to five o'clock, I had the, the opposite effect where it made me likelier to go to the game, but for a Sunday afternoon, I kind of like it. I walked into my house by nine o'clock and I thought that was reasonable. They put out an email, which we'll do a podcast on this at a later date, but they did poll season ticket holders and those who have ever bought Met tickets this season on preferred start times. So we'll talk more about that at a later date. We'll get into that later, but they got the game in. They got the three game series in where things stand right now. They don't stand great. They're 43 and 50. They are. Let's just look at the loss column. Eight games behind Miami. Arizona and Philadelphia, they would need to pass two of those teams to make the postseason. So the hole that they've created remains rather large. They do have a part of their schedule. I can't even say it's a soft part of the schedule. Yeah, the White Sox are bad, but then they play the Red Sox, who've had a pretty good year. Then they play the Yankees, who are struggling, but still a better team. 
So, yeah, they play the Nationals after that. But as we've seen over the last year or so, no matter who's on the schedule, does not make it easy. But, yeah, they're in the same spot they were in a couple of weeks ago. They need a long winning streak. Does any of us expect that to happen? Not really. They got three games against the White Sox coming up. Carlos Carrasco is going to pitch Tuesday against Lucas Giolito. Verlander is going to go Wednesday, so they're going to keep him on his regular rest. And then Jose Quintana will be slotted in Thursday to make his long-anticipated Met debut. That sets Kodai Senga up to pitch Friday night in Boston. So if my math is correct, Max Scherzer would get an extra day as well, and he'll pitch Saturday late afternoon in Boston against the Red Sox. The Mets have three games against the White Sox. They've got three games against the Red Sox and then two games against the Yankees. I I can't get over this interleague stuff. Like, it's just weird that, oh, yeah, they're going to play the White Sox, the Red Sox, and the Yankees over the next eight games, including a five-game road trip that takes them to Boston and the Bronx, the American League East road trip. I, I don't know if I'll ever get used to that, but here we are in 2023. Let me ask you a question because I haven't spoken to you really since the schedule came out for next year. They start and end with Milwaukee. Like, what the hell kind of schedule is that? (laughs) I know. First of all, I'm on vacation. I'm relaxing. It's the all-star break. All of a sudden, I get a text with the Mets schedule. And I'm like, are they moving this up every year earlier and earlier? Like, I remember it coming out. During the off season. Then I remember recently it's come out like August and September. Now it comes out in July during the all-star break. I, I've examined it briefly because what I looked at was road trip possibilities. That's the first thing I look at with a Met schedule. Like, okay, where could I drag the family? Can we go to Denver? Can we go to Seattle? Like this year was the perfect road trip schedule. I'm going to Boston for a couple of days. I am going to go to Baltimore for one of the games they play there. So it worked out great. Like they happen to be Boston and Baltimore, but they also happen to be on summer weekends, which certainly helps out. Middle of the week is, you know, usually not going to do me any good. So I look for that, but you're right. They open against Milwaukee and they end against Milwaukee. Now I wouldn't mind that if it was a division rival. If you want to sandwich the Atlanta Braves, okay. But against the team that where those are going to be the only times you face them, it is very strange. No question about it. Very strange. Yeah, it does make sense. And again, like it came out in All-Star break. There was no lead-up. There was no build-up. I know the Mets put uh, – I think the Mets put out a commercial too and stuff like that. But like you think they want to monetize it a little bit better than they did. I think it was a bad job by baseball. It also bothers me. I know this doesn't bother you and a lot of people, but it bothers me that the NBA season is months away and we don't have a schedule and yet in baseball, a year out, we have a schedule. Like, and I think that's more of my anger towards the NBA. I would rather know the schedule. Like, I just would like to know, hey, who do the Nets open up with? Hey, when do they play the Knicks? Like, I, I like to know those things. I know most people may not care, but it's freaking July. The season starts in October. They're announcing their freaking play, uh, in-season tournament. But we, and who's in my bracket? But they won't tell me, you know, when the games are being played. Meanwhile. In 2024, I know what the Mets are doing in August. This that, is this is this go, strange, and this goes to show where we are in a season where you don't even care about the Mets anymore. You're worried about when the Nets are playing. I mean, well, that's no. where we're at right now. <laughs> this is terrible. This is awful. Does Steve Cohen know what's going on right now with this team? Uh, I feel I'm, like they got blinders on. 
I am more worried about Aaron Rodgers' bowel movements than I am the Nets schedule. I'm just saying that the Mets schedule comes out in freaking July. And meanwhile, the basketball season starts in a few months and nobody has any idea when anything's going to start. Now that that's where we are. Uh, should I get to some of these emails? All right, fine. A lot of angry emails. A lot of people are very, very pissed off. Uh, let's start off with uh, Steven, Evan and Pete. What an incredible win against the Dodgers. Of course. I mean that sarcastically. We have won seven out of our last 11 games. <laughs> that's a good way to look at it. And yet I feel like we made it look so bad in the process. I don't feel like we've turned things around, and I still think we should be sellers at the trade deadline. How do you guys feel about winning 7 out of 11? All the best. So the Oakland A's have had a hot streak this season. The Kansas City Royals have had a hot streak this season. All bad teams get hot. And unfortunately, for the majority of this season, the Mets have been a bad team. So that's why it's tough to kind of say, ooh, they showed a pulse. Things are changing. Not really. It's not really changing because all teams are just, like, bad teams get hot for a short period of time. Deborah writes, Jacob DeGrom, are we sure he's not pitching for the Mets? Max just got the DeGrom treatment. Ooh. You try to pick a fight with me, Deborah. Look, when it comes to these kinds of things, I will always err on the side of if the pitcher thinks they're done, they're done. So our reaction as fans is to look at it and say, hey, would I would rather have that guy stay in the game? Do I think he still has it? And you offer an opinion. If it really came down to the pitcher saying to the manager, I'm done, then I can't fight it. I'm going to give you a non-med example that lives with me for a very long time. In 2019, the Yankees are playing game one of the ALCS against the Astros. So let's go all the way back to there. It's in Houston. Masiro Tanaka is pitching for the Yankees and is brilliant. Six brilliant innings. And Aaron Boone takes him out. Yankees win anyway, no issues. And I could not get over this. And I brought it up on the air the next day. Like, great win for the Yankees, yada, yada, yada. How the hell does Tanaka come out of this game? Like, What is Boone thinking? And the excuses that were given to me from Sweeney and other Yankee reporters were, well, their bullpen's their strength. Why not get them out? Blah, 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 blah. Didn't buy any of it. A year later, and Sweeney did the reporting on this, so I give him credit. Sweeney says to me, you know why Tanaka came out of that game, Evan? I said, no, it still bothers me. He said, because Tanaka told him he was done. And I said, okay. Well, that, I mean, what, what, what am I going to say to that? You know, we could scream and yell about pitchers. And I know that was one of the critiques of DeGrom. Well, demand the ball. Make sure you pitch the eighth inning. Like, yeah, I get that in general. But if a pitcher who knows their body says, I'm not going to be as effective in this next inning, you're actually doing the right thing. Otherwise, you want this guy coming out there for a seventh inning where he's going to get his ass kicked and the game kind of turns. So I've looked at that differently over the years. Keith writes, the Mets are currently 19th in runs scored and closer to 26th than they are to the top 10. In 2022, the team finished 5th in runs scored. Elite to below average is a massive drop, and their inability to get sustained production has been a major issue for the entire year. It's fine to believe pitching is their number one concern, but please stop denying that the offense has been a huge problem as well. Stop minimizing it. This team isn't good at anything. Honest conversation about a rebuild will eventually need to take place. So I get this a lot now 
based on our conversation during the midseason report. I'm not excusing the Met offense. There have been many, many games, including this series against the Dodgers, where the Mets managed 10 freaking hits in three games, where their offense has cost them. I just believe that the pitching has been far and away their biggest issue. Doesn't mean their offense hasn't been an issue. Doesn't mean Pete Alonso hasn't been horrific for two months. Doesn't mean they've gotten the big hit every time they needed to. They haven't. This has not been a great offensive team. I just think not only with the results of this year, but even looking forward, I have more confidence in this lineup than they do their rotation. Their rotation is an old breaking down rotation with not a lot of guys who are going to be part of the future. I look at the offense differently. Now, we're going to do more emails in our next pod. We may even throw a bonus pod this weekend. But let me just say this about the rebuild. Because I had a guy say this to me at the Met game on Sunday night. Guy came over to me, sat down, and we started talking Mets. And he said, do you remember when what Mike Francesa said to you in 2008? And I'm glad he brought that up because I've mentioned this on the air a few times that Mike and I argued a lot about after the first collapse, Mike said the core is rotten. They got to break it up. They got to trade right or Reyes. And we fought about it for years. I think Sal Licata was on my side. Like we teamed up and disagreed with Mike, disagreed with Mike. And I think eventually Mike turned out to be right. I give him credit. The core was rotten. The Mets collapsed again in 08. Nowhere to be seen in 09. So the guy says, don't you think this core is rotten? They choked down the stretch last year, specifically the series against Atlanta. They have not responded at all this season. Don't you think something's up with the core? So my response to him was, look, they are having a terrible season, a historically bad season coming off of 101 wins. I'm open to anything. And that's what I'll say to everybody listening. I am open to anything. Tell me an idea. I will listen to it. And then I'll give you my opinion. Maybe I'm open to more crazy things than you could imagine. So the guy then says, and this is the problem, not ripping him, but this is the problem with this whole, we got to talk about a rebuild. We got to talk about this and that. He says to me, look, I would trade anybody on this team, but, and he gives me the list of the buts, but Pete Alonzo, Francisco Lindor, Brandon Nimmo, Francisco Alvarez, and Edwin Diaz. So I say to him, okay, hold on a second. So you're open to trading anybody, but the guys you won't trade are Pete Alonzo, Brandon Nimmo, Francisco Lindor, Francisco Alvarez, and Edwin Diaz. Well, then who the hell are you open to trading that has any value? Oh, great. You're open to trading Starling Marte. Oh, great. You're open to trading Jeff McNeil coming off the worst season of his career. That sounds brilliant. Oh, you're open to trading Mark Canna and Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander. Like, think about what you're saying when in one breath, and I I don't mean to rip this guy. I mean, in general, like this conversation of, oh, they got to blow it up. Blow it up. And then you don't want to trade anybody. You want to trade the guys that nobody wants. Like, if you're filled with balls, if you're filled with, there's something wrong with this core, then have the balls to say you would trade Brandon Nemo then just say it. Then have the balls to say, I want to trade Pete Alonso, even though that's a little soft coming off of what's turning into a bad season. Then have the guts to say, you know what? I want to trade Francisco Alvarez. We got other catchers in this system. Kevin Parada is going to be fine. I want to trade him. Then, then say it. 
because you cannot say in one breath, I want to break the core up and then name the entire core of guys you don't want to trade. That's my problem. And look, I'm sure we'll have much more deeper conversations about this as this horrible season continues. But keep that in mind. Whenever you say to your friends or you write an email to us, I want to blow it up. And then you proceed to name all the guys you don't want to trade. <laughs> uh, listen, I, the one thing I will say, because we we spent the, uh, this is a nice podcast and we will be, be doing a bonus because of this. The trade deadline is coming up and we're going to have to talk about the guys that should be traded from this team. And I've, I went on my show all weekend long and said, basically, everyone you said needs to go. And I did name names that I don't want to trade. Pete Alonso was one of them. And I said Alvarez, I think Maurice Show is someone that I want to see build around. I think he's going to be fantastic. I don't think anybody's going to touch the Lindor contract. I don't think he's going to waive the no trade clause. So that's why I said, I, you know, he's probably going to have to stay. But basically, everyone else besides Alvarez, Mauricio, and Alonso. I think Alonzo's a key piece because for for historical purposes, guy's going to break every record well, in Mets history. Yeah, and, and look, I, that means a lot to some of us, not to all of us, because there were plenty of Mets fans who were ready to get rid of Degrom, not even realizing he was going to need Tommy John surgery. Though I guess that risk always existed. I, I have a very tough time with let's trade guys off of crappy seasons. It bothers me because it's. It's so easy to want to do that. And you and you react sometimes as if other GMs and other teams are not paying attention to the fact that Jeff McNeil is hitting 248. You know, we can't ignore that. You know, last year was the time to trade Jeff McNeil. It was. The guy won a batting title. The Mets had not extended him yet. He had two years of team control. If you had an issue with Jeff McNeil or said, hey, let's do something bold, you do it then. You don't do it when the guy's got a 670 OPS. Why would you trade someone at their worst value? Well, we'll spend a lot of to- a lot of more a lot more time on that as we get closer to the trade deadline because, like you said, we're two weeks away. You know, we are two weeks away from D Day for the New York Mets and a lot of other teams around Major League Baseball. But they do have a three-game series coming up against the Chicago White Sox. We'll give you a bonus pod before that, and then we'll get you a recap after the White Sox series. We do appreciate all the emails, and we've gotten a lot of them. Unfortunately, didn't have a lot of time to read uh, a ton of them. On that bonus pod, we'll certainly go through a lot more emails as we embark on what's been a, a terrible season and embark on a second half that's gotten off to a bad start at 1-2. and two. You can email the pod to ricob at gmail.com. I am back on the air Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday with Joe B. Take a little bit more vacation, and then I'll be back basically working every day with the new show, which launches on the 24th with Tiki Barber and Tommy Lugauer and Sean Morash. I look forward to that. And congratulations to my man Pete Hoffman. He's got himself a permanent every week program Friday into Saturday overnight. The old Big Mac slot. So congratulations, Pete. Thank, thank you very much. I'm very excited. And it was a great way to start off uh, on fr- on Friday and Saturday with the Mets losing and just going off on that for five hours. So thank you to the Mets for making it easy for me. The Mets, <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, we appreciate you listening and downloading Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.